Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. David Stukas, commonly known as Dr. Dave. Dr. Dave is a professor of clinical pediatrics in the Division of Allergy Immunology at Nationwide Children's Hospital and the Ohio State University College of Medicine. At his institution, he serves as director of the Food Allergy Treatment Center and associate director of the Pediatric Allergy Immunology Fellowship Training Program. In the episode, Dr. Dave explains the difference between an allergy, sensitivity, and intolerance, how to diagnose a food allergy or intolerance, the science behind boosting your immune system, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since they deliver groceries directly to your door, Thrive is able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Dave. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I have followed you for a long time on Instagram and preparing for this, I was scrolling through your posts as I encourage everyone to do. And I was just kind of picking different topics I wanted to talk about. And as you know, I sent you a ton because I think there is just such a lack of evidence-based information out there, at least I don't know if that's true for you, but I feel like on social media in general, it's almost like the people who say the crazy stuff get the biggest, I don't know, reaction or platform Mm -hmm. or something because it's more exciting and enticing and everybody kind of gravitates to that. But your page is incredible and we will share where everybody can follow you and find you. Um, But do you, do you find that yourself that you're, or is it just, you know, what, what is going on on social media in terms of 
science-backed, evidence-based information. No, you're absolutely right. I, that's why I joined social media in the first place. Uh, I started on Twitter about a decade ago and joined Instagram about three years ago. And it was to try to provide evidence-based quality information, which unfortunately is often very boring. Uh, nobody wants to hear the boring stuff. Uh, so you're right. All the all the sexy headlines and the clickbait is what garners all the attention. But more often than not, it's either just based on misconceptions, which are innocent misunderstandings of you know health and things like that, or what we've dealt with, especially over the last few years, misinformation, which is you know deliberate attempts to provide incorrect information to try to sway public opinion or influence medical decision making. It, it's a real problem, unfortunately. It is. Yeah. And I, especially like you said, over the past couple of years, I think a lot of us have maybe realized that not everything out there comes with the evidence that it should. And so we're kind of trying to find the science backed providers and advice. But unfortunately, I think there is still a lot of people, there are still a lot of people spreading misconceptions, which we will dive into. But mm -hmm. what would you, uh, just to share your background, what led you, first of all, to become a board certified physician and then an allergist and immunologist? Well, I've always loved science. And as an undergrad student, I majored in molecular biology. And I actually had a minor in psychology, which at the time, it was just my interest in understanding how the human brain works. And I realize now in my career, 25 years later, that I, the psychology aspect of it comes into play every day, every, every single encounter that I have, and then everything I do online, all of our cognitive biases and how we address that, because uh, sometimes perception seems like it's reality. But I, I fell in love with science, and I knew I wanted to go into medicine. And then um, early on, I, I realized that I, I like working with kids, uh, so I wanted to focus on pediatrics. Uh, no offense to the adults that are listening, but we're all kind of crazy. Uh, <laughs> um, and with, with kids, it's interesting, because you can have the same exact condition, uh, but it's extremely different if you're dealing with it in a one-year-old compared to an 18-year-old. Old. Um, so it's all the same, but the way we sort of interact and manage it is, is highly variable. So it's just fun. I, I just I get to have fun at work. And then I realized that um, I fell in love with allergy and immunology first with asthma. Uh, I, I didn't realize, I didn't understand why asthma was the leading cause of hospitalization every single autumn in almost every hospital across the world. Uh, and it's such a common condition, you think it'd be very easy to control, but it's actually quite complicated. And then in order to specialize in treating children with asthma, you can either become a pulmonologist which I didn't love, or you can become an allergist, which, you know, you also can focus on food allergies in the immune system, which I thought was really fascinating. And then over the last 10 years or so, what initially drew me into loving asthma uh, is why I fell in love with food allergies. So now I just, I entirely focus on food allergy as the director of our food allergy center. Uh, that's all I do now, because I think we're really on the cusp of offering a very individualized, personalized approach to both diagnosis and management. So it's a, it, exciting times. Oh, wow. That's, that's very cool. I totally hear you on the kids part. I used to be a teacher for 12 years. I taught and, you know, kids are one thing, but then when you're dealing with the same things in adults, it's way worse. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> when adults are being crazy, it's like, well, kids, I mean, these are teenagers. They're supposed to act like this. But then when your colleagues are acting like that, it's like, you're 45. What are you, what's your excuse? <laughs> yeah. Very different. <laughs> very different. Very different. So speaking of misconceptions, Let's start first with environmental allergies. Like, what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions you see circulating news headlines or social media 
about environmental allergies? It goes back to the basics. And I think a lot of people assume that their symptoms are due to allergies when often they're not. And that's one thing I do whenever I have a new patient consultation is I I say, I'm glad you're here. I really want to take today to clarify your diagnosis. Uh, Because if your symptoms are due to allergies, we we have allergy testing that can confirm that. The treatment we recommend may differ. The avoidance measures may differ. Prognosis may change. If it's not due to allergy, then it's completely different. Uh, We're going to take a whole different approach. Uh, So really, for anybody listening, if if you think that your symptoms are due to allergies, but you haven't had that confirmed through proper testing by a board-certified allergist or your physician, I highly recommend you do so because it can really alter things. Um, So that's one of the biggest misconceptions. And then the second one is really in relation to uh, the treatments that we offer. And a lot of people, you know, use outdated uh, inferior treatments to treat a lot of their symptoms. Like I've been on this soapbox for years to try to rid the world of Benadryl, which is diphenhydramine. These first generation antihistamines are so, they've been around for 80 years and everybody knows them and they, they, they trust them. But if you look at the evidence, they are really bad at what they do. They have tons of side effects. They're short lasting. Uh, they make people very sedated uh, and they don't actually treat the symptoms that we want them to treat. And we have, we have much better options available now. Uh, so really just taking a, a, a nice current approach as to what's my diagnosis, what are the treatments that I'm using and why, I think it's helpful for everybody. Is it just a lot of people self-diagnosing? So it's every spring comes around and they're sneezing and then they think I have seasonal allergies, but then they might have something else? Yeah, it's either misconceptions with self-diagnosis, or maybe they do have some environmental allergies, but then they have symptoms that are caused by other other triggers at different times of the year. Or we see it from, you know, the people who refer their patients to us as well, from medical professionals of they make assumptions about what's causing symptoms. But that's why I have a job. That's That's what allergists are here for. We want to help clarify this for everybody. Good job security, I guess. Which is yes. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not environmental allergies, what are some things that it is if people are kind of misdiagnosed? We, we always start with the environment in general. Uh, so there are things in our environment that can absolutely, you know, cause nasal symptoms and respiratory symptoms like coughing uh, that aren't actually allergens. So uh, tobacco smoke, uh, wood-burning stoves, aerosolized products, including scented candles, incense, essential oil diffusers, uh, small particulates from pollution, weather changes, uh, things like that. So those are all common triggers for a lot of the, the same symptoms that may look like allergies. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's, there's people that just have, you know, other causes for it, such as anatomy, you know, that a lot of children have enlarged adenoids or they have, you know, uh, their nasal septums are deviated or they have other problems, which is causing blockage and they can't breathe through the nose very well and it causes very similar symptoms. Uh, or they may have asthma, which is misdiagnosed as allergies. Uh, so we really, you know, we, we take an individualized approach and kind of go through everybody's specific symptoms, uh, any triggers, um, you know, what, what seems to make it worse, what seems to make it better and, and so on. If you do have allergy symptoms at some point in the year, do you just recommend that that person go to an allergist and get a test to see, to confirm or to find the root cause? Yeah, there's variations in it. For a lot of folks, if you just kind of experience some, you know, irritating, itchy, watery eyes, sneezing, runny nose for a few weeks during the year, and you get better with an over-the-counter second-generation antihistamines, you're fine. Uh, that, you know, that's good self-management first line. I think if things are progressing where the medications you're using aren't providing relief, uh, or if your symptoms are, are really interfering with your quality of life, and for people with environmental allergies, they'll tell you they, they don't sleep well at night. Uh, they're they're exhausted while they try to go to work or school. Uh, it really impacts their daily functioning those folks would definitely benefit from proper diagnosis through seeing an allergist and they can really talk about more individualized treatment. Right. Is it true that 
when you live in a place for about three years, that's when your allergies really start to hit environmental allergies. I heard that one time. Is that true? Well, it's sort of true. So there's okay. this honeymoon period where, so first you have to have allergies to begin with, but you know, people will often say, say they live here in Ohio and they, okay, I want to move to the desert so I can get away from my allergens. Well, you sort of do, but you don't. So you, you miss the allergens that, you know, are present where you live, like here is different trees and grasses and weeds. But then even if you move to the desert, uh, eventually you're going to develop allergies to the plants that are there. It just may take a couple of years for your immune system to ramp up and, and become allergic to those specific species. Oh, okay. Interesting. The reason I ask, I was living in New York City for a while and I went to Columbia at the time to get my master's and I thought I was sick for just months and months and I kept going. My insurance at the time, I think was through the university. And so that was a joke, but I would go and they would give me like a paper bag of Advil or something. And I was like, no, I really feel awful. And eventually I saw an allergist and I got testing done and I was highly allergic to grass mm-hmm. and I had been working in this school where we went into Central Park every single day and just sat in the grass all day but I thought I had this cold that wouldn't go away it was insane but finally mm-hmm. it was diagnosed and then everything was back to normal when you have an environmental allergy like grass I was diagnosed with does that last forever or does it ever go away well, it depends on, on when you develop it. So there's a lot of younger children that will develop environmental allergies that may actually improve as they go through adolescence. Uh, there's some folks that don't develop their allergies until they're teenagers or young adults. Uh, some folks, it gets better during adulthood or um, you know as they enter the later stages in life. Everybody's a little bit individualized. So it's never sort of set it and forget it. Um, and I always like to offer hope that folks may naturally sort of you know outgrow their allergies. Yeah. Fortunately, I don't roll around in the grass a lot anymore, so it hasn't hasn't been an issue. Just in that period of time, I was basically living in the grass, and it was was not good. You said Benadryl is outdated. So if somebody, that's their go-to, it's just in their pantry right now, what Mm -hmm. do you recommend instead of Benadryl? Well, it depends on what your symptoms are. Um, if you're predominantly treating itching, sneezing, and you want to use an antihistamine, I would go with a long-lasting second-generation one like Zyrtec, which is cetirizine, or Allegra fexofenadine. Those those will offer you know four times the duration as Benadryl, and they don't cause sedation, things like that. If you're really stuffy um, and you have a lot of um, you know mucus production and you're, you can't breathe through your nose, nasal steroid sprays are the go-to. That's really the best treatment for all nasal symptoms. They really need to be used every day for them to be effective, and you have to be consistent with them. Uh, but that's the way to go for those symptoms. So it, again, it just depends upon what's bothering you the most. Mm-hmm. Is it? Can you use a steroid long term, or is there a point when you need to stop? Yeah, the, these actually were, uh, they became over-the-counter several years ago because they are very safe to use. Uh, we do worry about some of the may- localized side effects. So pe- some people can get nosebleeds, uh, and that usually comes from when you direct the spray towards the middle part of your nose of the septum. So we just out- we tell people to kind of direct it towards the outside part of their nose. Uh, but certainly if anybody is experiencing nosebleeds or irritation despite using these, um, then they should definitely talk to the doctor about it. What about like the ocean mist ones? Mm-hmm. Do those things work? Yeah. So there's all kinds of different nose sprays and different medications. And that's the other thing too, is if you go to any pharmacy or grocery store, you go to the cough and cold medicine aisle. Oh my gosh, it is overwhelming. I mean, there's, you know, natural supplements, there's medications, there's, you know, things that say cough and cold, but they actually don't treat cough and cold. And a lot of these actually can train Benadryl, even though they don't say it on the label and all kinds of stuff like that. So if you're looking for like a non-medication natural therapy, yes, like a nasal saline spray or rinse works wonders. So if you're, if you have environmental allergies or a sinus infection or a cold and your nose is irritated, it's like, kind of like having a sunburn inside your nose, right? It's super irritated and inflamed and swollen. Uh, so a nice little gentle saltwater spray or rinse inside there can be really soothing. 
Mm. What about a neti pot? Yeah, so that that's a, sort of the next version of the saline spray. So a, a nasal spray gets in the front part of your nose, and neti pot actually goes into your sinuses. And if you do it right, it's going to make you kind of cough and gag, but it does clear you out a little bit. Uh, you do want to be careful that you use sterilized water in those because uh, you don't want to cause any infections that you can get through uh, through other sources. But uh, yeah, a lot of people receive extreme benefit from those. You mentioned just kind of the allergy cold flu aisles in the store. And so you already mentioned the Zyrtec, the Allegra, the mm -hmm. nasal sprays. Are there any other go-tos you have there if you or you, kids or somebody has a cold or a cough? Like what are your favorites in that aisle? Uh, to be honest with you, if you if you have a run-of-the-mill cold, just supportive care with like nasal saline rinses um, and uh, lots of liquids, chicken soup. <laughs> okay. It's really – that's kind of all you need. A lot of the other stuff, it either works through placebo. So all those vitamins and supplements, they actually – if you look at the evidence, they don't do a whole lot. Yeah, and everybody's going to say, what about vitamin C? Well, not really. If you, I mean, if you look at all the studies, you have to take mega, mega whopping doses of vitamin C. And even then, it has very minimal benefit for preventing or treating the common cold and you know, our bodies are really good at kind of urinating out all the excess vitamins that we take in anyways. That's why mm. our, our, our pee glows and it colors when you take multivitamins and stuff like that. Um, but I would say a word of caution. So I would avoid certain things. Uh, so I would avoid the, the first generation antihistamines like Benadryl that can make you really sedated and, and impaired if you're trying to drive or things like that. And you have to be really careful with topical decongestants as well. So things like Afrin, which are nasal sprays, um, they can work really well short term for decreasing congestion. But if you use them for more than, you know, four or five days, on a consistent basis, it can lead to this rebound phenomenon. And people can actually become medically addicted to these sprays. Uh, so the effect wears off and it actually makes you even more congested. So you start using the spray more and more and more. And it's really hard to break that cycle. So uh, you, you always call your doctor if you have any questions about these things or talk to your pharmacist as well. Yeah. So the supplements, what about zinc? I've heard mixed reviews about zinc. If there's a type that is a slow dissolving, like maybe that can help at the onset of a cold. Is there any research behind that? Or You know, zinc is the one that does have some evidence behind it, but it all depends on what type of tablet that you get and the dose that's involved. Um, you know, the Zycam product was, you know, they got this black box warning or pulled off the shelves because it was causing people to lose their sense of smell because people were spraying it in their noses. Um, so it just goes back to, again, what's the evidence actually show? And oftentimes the claims on these sort of, you know, natural remedies or supplements, that they aren't really back by the evidence, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So n just kind of stay away from zinc too. Basically you're screwed. <laughs> you well, <laughs> I th I'd much rather have you spend time washing your hands and not touching your face. <laughs> mm, yeah. I know. I touch my face That's an option. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I once went to a doctor when I was living in New York and I was teaching and I was very sick and she was just kind of looking at me for a while and listening to me. And she said, you know why you're sick, right? And I said, no, mm. I have no idea. And she, or I said, yeah, I mean, like, like a kid coughed near me. And she said, no, you're sick because you just touched your face probably 15 times when you were talking to me. <laughs> I was like, oh God. And so I guess she was saying in medical school, like one of the first things she learned was wash your hands all the time and don't touch your face. And she said, yeah. oh, a lot of doctors don't get sick, even though they're around germs all the time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Every door handle, every elevator, but like, I don't use my fingers to push elevator buttons. <laughs> like, you know, it's like an elbow or a knuckle or something. Um, yeah. And then, you know, this whole, we, we kind of moved away from handshakes and hugs and stuff during the pandemic. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I, I don't miss it a whole lot. Like touching somebody else's hand. I don't know where your hand has been. I don't want to be rude <laughs> or anything. It's nice to see you, but that's kind of gross. Like, yeah. skin, I don't, I don't, I don't need those. Did that person touch the elevator button? Probably. Right. Now it's exactly. on your, yeah. She also said, I don't know how you feel about this tip, but she said, always take 
kind of like the inside top of your shirt and mm-hmm. scratch your nose or something with that if you need to, if you don't have a tissue available. Oh, yeah. That was her tip to me. I have not consistently done it, but I think about it every once in a while. But she was essentially saying, stop touching your face because you're just yeah. putting the germs directly on your body. And she said somebody would basically have to cough directly into my face for me to get sick. And it's harder to get sick if somebody's just kind of coughing around you, but it's easier if you're touching your face. Is that true? That Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're directly applying these um billions of microbes right to your your nose or your mouth, you are and you're and they're entering your body right away, which is very different than sort of all the different factors that can change with somebody coughing in the vicinity of you. Are you indoors or you outdoors? You know, all this other stuff. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you have any uh, favorite, let's say you have a cold, like Alka-Seltzer or Dayquil, or do those things work or they're all just kind of the same and they just kind of numb you for a while? Any yeah, favorites I don't, or thoughts on this? I don't, I don't take any of those. I, I hydrate like crazy. Uh, so I drink as much as I can because as you, as your nose is running and you, 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 you know, mucosa dries out, it can be really irritating. So I drink as much as I possibly can. I try my best to rest. Um, I personally will use something like Afrin for just two or three days just to kind of get me through. Um, I try to avoid the oral decongestants because they can have more side effects, like they can affect your heart rate and, you know, uh, give you difficulty sleeping and stuff like that. Uh, but that's kind of my go-to. Lots of nasal nasal saline sprays as well. Mm, okay. What about some of the biggest misconceptions around food allergies? I don't know. Would we tackle this with kids and then adults? Is it kind of two categories or? No, same rules. No, apply. same. Okay. Yeah. So you, again, it goes back to, I always like to clarify, are you allergic or you're not? In order to even consider whether somebody has a food allergy, they have to have a good story for having food allergies. And that story is going to be some variation of every time I eat this specific food within minutes, rarely longer than one or two hours later, my body produces these symptoms, which can be any combination of big red itchy hives. You can have swelling, uh, vomiting, uh, you know, what we call anaphylaxis, which is a progression of these symptoms or combination of these symptoms. It should be reproducible every time you eat it. So a lot of people say, oh, you know, I get upset stomach or diarrhea if I eat you know, dairy products. And I, I will say, what happens if you eat yogurt or cheese or things like, oh, I can eat yogurt and cheese, but when I drink milk, it upsets me. Well, that's not a food allergy. A food allergy is going to be reproducible every single time. So the best test is what happens when you eat the food. If you're eating the food and you're not having those symptoms, you are not allergic to that food. It's that simple. Um, if, you're eat, if you've never eaten that food, uh, we don't know if you're going to be allergic to that food. Uh, the allergy testing that we have, we do something called a skin test in the office where we apply drops of liquid allergen to the back, gently scratch through the top part of the skin. We wait 15 minutes. If, the, if that person has allergy antibody, then it will release histamine and cause a hive. The size of that hive to the allergen indicates the likelihood that you're allergic. It's not definitive. It's not a yes or no answer. We get a lot of false positives. Also doesn't tell us the severity of your allergy. Same thing with blood testing. Blood uh, can measure the level of the allergy antibody known as IgE. The higher the level makes it more likely that you're allergic. Again, not definitive. Lots of false positives. But it goes back to what's the best test? What happens when I eat it? So when the story is kind of wishy-washy, when the testing is wishy-washy, or somebody with known food allergy, we think they've outgrown it, come hang out with me and we do something called an oral food challenge in the office, uh, which is, you know, we basically give you small amounts of the food. You eat it, Nothing happens after 10 or 15 minutes. We give you a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. After you've had a certain amount, if, if nothing happens, we clear you of having that allergy. 
So there, there's pitfalls here. One would be people assuming that any symptom that occurs in, in association with eating a food is due to allergy when often it's not. And number two, these tests that I described are overused. They are vastly overused by medical professionals. They're actually now available direct to consumer. You can order at-home blood testing. Uh, there's a real problem with that. These tests are not screening tests. They're simply not. There's a lot of false positives. Just because you have det a detectable level does not mean that you're actually allergic to it. And there are way too many people that are avoiding foods in their diet that they're not allergic to based upon these testing. Is that like the Everlywell tests? That yeah, well, the Everlywell is is both. That's actually more of a, a that's not, not even a validated test. So that one, uh, so all these food sensitivity tests. So food sensitivity is sort of this made up diagnosis that's based on marketing. So unlike the allergies, which are caused by IgE antibody, these blood tests measure something called IgG antibody. Well, here's the problem. IgG is a normal response to eating a food. It's a memory antibody. We should be producing IgG if we eat this food. So any test that sort of scans you for 200 foods to measure levels of IgG, all it's telling you is th things you've eaten in the past. It's not diagnosing food sensitivity or intolerance or allergy. And these tests cost hundreds of dollars. And uh, they can actually lead to major problems of people avoiding foods they don't have to. And now we're seeing more and more people develop these, these really um, you know, disordered eating behaviors and eating disorders where you know, they're given this list of 25 things that they're told that they're, they need to avoid because they have sensitivities, which they don't have. And then they really struggle with trying to find healthy foods to eat, going out to eat with friends and loved ones. Uh, they change their entire lives around this. Especially if it's detecting the foods you've eaten. So if you eat eggs and walnuts every day, and then it tells you it detects eggs and walnuts, then you're going to stop eating. It's going to tell you to stop eating, I'm imagining, a lot of the stuff you're used to eating. So you have to kind of completely overhaul your dietary pattern. Yeah, and it, it's a bogus test. It, it simply doesn't diagnose any medical condition. And the test, they never come back completely negative. Uh, why would they? Because most people yeah. eat food at some point. <laughs> um, so it's all about, you know, they, they give this bogus interpretation and, and all kinds of things like that. But it, it is a huge problem. If someone is, let's say we're following on Instagram, talking about food sensitivities and food sensitivity testing, and they're not an allergist, is that a big red flag? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So it, uh, always follow the money. Are they being paid to actually advertise for something? A lot of these folks, if you look and if anybody is promoting their services, supplements or products, they're trying to make money off the information that they're giving you. That is a huge conflict of interest. Um, when you look at my Instagram page, I'm not selling anything. I'm just trying to provide good information. And there's a lot of other medical professionals and folks out there that are doing the same. Um, so that's sort of the, the biggest red flag is if you read something they're like, oh, you should buy this test to change my life. Oh, are they actually making money off of that? Uh, you know, that's what these all these influencers do they get paid to promote things and they don't always disclose that either mm -hmm. so sensitivity food sensitivity is essentially made up yeah, it, it really doesn't have a, a unified expert you know, definition as to how to diagnose it. There's certainly no test that's ever been validated to diagnose that condition. Okay. Now, there are people that have food intolerances, which is more difficult to digestion. Uh, so that is when I eat a certain food or a certain food in certain quantities or forms, I, I have a hard time digesting it. It makes me feel unwell. So I have a lot of abdominal symptoms, cramping, bloating, diarrhea. And then if I reduce my intake of that food, those symptoms improve. Uh, there's also you know, a lack of good validated tests for that as well. Uh, so I always recommend if you really are worried about specific foods causing symptoms, please meet with a, your doctor or board certified allergist or gastroenterologist because they can help you. Because there's a lot of folks out there, they assume certain things and they often correlate specific foods with symptoms, whereas that food may not be causing those symptoms at all. And in fact, restricting their diet may make their actual symptoms or condition even worse. Mm-hmm. 
that's like when everybody started cutting out gluten, right? And then oh. cutting out fiber and all these healthy nutrients and whole grains oh, and different things. Yeah. Poor gluten. Gluten, you know, the, the gluten-free industry, it's a billion-dollar industry. Gluten never did anything wrong. I feel bad for gluten. Gluten is – its it, people think it's evil. There's nothing wrong with gluten. There's like 2% of the population that needs to avoid gluten from a medical standpoint. Yeah. Uh, those with celiac disease or true wheat allergy or some people have gluten intolerance. But, you know, there's people that adopt these gluten-free diets because, you know, they're, be, they're being told different things or that gluten causes various symptoms, which it doesn't. It is it's, – it's a huge scam. And also a lot of people who say they're going gluten-free, they're more like gluten light, right? They're not, I mean, to go gluten-free is insane. And I don't think anybody with celiac would wish that on anybody because you have to be careful of how your food is prepared in a restaurant and mm -hmm. even in your own home. I mean, it's this whole thing. Whereas if you're going to a restaurant and you're just avoiding the bread, you're not even yeah. avoiding all gluten because it's probably in your salad dressing and right. on your chicken. It's like, yeah. yeah, it's it's in it, you know it's in wheat and and uh, barley and rye and different types of grains. And you're right, a lot of people say, "Oh, I went gluten free." Well, why did you do that? Well, I I was sluggish and I felt sort of fatigued and tired, or I had joint pain or stuff like that. So I you know, I cut back on my gluten and I felt better. And then you and you think about what foods often contain the most amount of gluten. So lots of breads and pastas and processed foods and things like that. I think any of us would feel better if we sort of cut back on eating these highly processed foods. The other thing that people sort of neglect to take into account when they say they go gluten free, gluten light. Is they often make other changes to their lifestyle, so they either start exercising more, or maybe they reduce their alcohol intake, or they focused on you know so wellness and stress reduction. But then they attribute to this one specific molecule called gluten. Um, you know, it, it's that's rarely the cause of, of all these you know overarching problems that people have. Right. Would you ever recommend elimination diets, or is that just in extreme cases? No, I do under proper supervision from a properly trained medical expert that is meeting with you one on one, not somebody who you're meeting on Instagram or online. Okay. Um, yeah, so nobody should be giving you specific medical advice online. Period. Like that. That's a that's a huge red flag if anybody's offering that. Right. Okay. And then you would work with this person, a qualified practitioner, and go through the protocol of eliminating foods. But I see a lot of people just doing it on their own, kind of self-diagnosing. Let's stick with gluten and then cutting out all gluten and then saying they feel better. But then that can have serious implications for your gut, right? Because if you cut whole food groups out, then doesn't your whole like gut microbiota change and then you're not able to process those things as well? Like if you were to have a piece of bread? Well, yes and no. So we know that our microbiome is affected by the foods that we eat. And if you eliminate certain foods, it's going to have some change on it. But what that change means, we don't really fully understand. Uh, and it probably means different things for different people. So it's hard to extrapolate that. Okay. Um, but more importantly, I mean, if you if you are to undergo your, your own elimination diet, um, what we're looking for is, you know, specific foods you're eliminating and what, what you're looking for. What are the objective criteria you're going to use to see if you feel better? And use a period of two to four weeks. You don't need to do this for six months. Uh, if you're worried about, I don't even know what it, what it is, but when you, when you use subjective symptoms like fatigue uh, or energy level or stuff like that, that's really hard to quantify. But most importantly, if those symptoms improve and you feel that it was due to elimination of that food, you need to put that food back in your diet to see if those symptoms come back again. Uh, that's an elimination diet. So reintroduction is the biggest part of that because if those symptoms don't come back again, then it wasn't due to that specific food. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's great studies that show these people who eliminate gluten, uh, when they reintroduce it, those symptoms don't come back again. Oh, interesting. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. 
Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at The Health Investment. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, I think a lot of it too is probably kind of like placebo or the mind is a powerful thing, right? So if you think oh, you're yeah. allergic to gluten or not if, not even allergic, if you think you have an intolerance to gluten and then you eat a piece of bread, all of a sudden you feel terrible and tired, but maybe you got five hours of sleep the night before, like, you know, there's absolutely we yeah, as a society part- are like not managing our stress and not sleeping and we're feeling fatigued, but then maybe going to specific foods to blame. If you look at every single research study that's ever been done that uses a placebo group, the placebo group improves mm. every time. So placebo is very powerful. About 30% of people tend to feel better if they're given essentially a sugar pill. Then there's the nocebo effect, which is you remove something. So uh, you know, adopting a gluten-free diet isn't placebo. That's nocebo. Uh, and there's buy-in. There's cognitive biases that say, listen, I'm, I, I think that it's because of this. This is what's causing my symptoms. I'm going to eliminate that. I'm going to want to feel better. And then if I do accidentally eat that and I know I ate that, then you know, subjectively I may feel worse. So yeah, this is our minds are very powerful and they absolutely can you know, make us feel certain symptoms. Wasn't there some unethical study a long time ago where they pretended to do a knee surgery on somebody and then they didn't do the surgery and then the person felt better? I mean, I think it's obviously very unethical, but I remember reading about something where they even did placebo with, I think it was a knee surgery, some type of surgery and the person felt better, but they didn't actually do the surgery, which... I don't, again, don't quote me on that, but I no, feel no, like that, mind is a powerful thing. <laughs> yes, it's it, it very, very much so. And, you know, I have that conversation every single day, especially for people who have chronic symptoms and they're trying to find that specific food. And they come to me thinking that there's, you know, 25 foods in their diet that are causing this. And I try to redirect and I say, I believe you and I absolutely hear you. And I want to clarify, I don't think it's because of these specific foods. I think no matter what you ate, you're going to have these symptoms. Uh, so let's focus on the symptoms. Let's figure out what the root cause of that is. And sometimes if we can't find the root cause of that, let's find a way to make you feel better, Uh, whether it's through treatment options or whether it's through, uh, you know, the the psychological aspect of just coping with chronic illness or whatever that may be. Uh, But, you know, there's a lot of folks that are trying to, you know, chase their, chase these symptoms through elimination diets. They're not finding the help that they need. I think also if somebody is convinced, let's say that a certain food is triggering them and then they come to you and you, you give them that kind of evidence-based response of, I think maybe any food could do this, then that's when they may hop to like a functional medicine or naturopathic doctor, somebody who's going to give them the answers they want of, you're right, this Mm -hmm. food is the trigger, and then put them on a million supplements. And then they spend all of this time and money treating something that may not have existed in the first place. Is that like, I, I see people saying like, oh, my allergist didn't listen to me when I said I have this thing that they diagnosed themselves with. And then that's when yeah. they went to somebody else. Is that, do you see that happening a lot? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the time. Uh, I do everything I possibly can when I have individual encounters to try to prevent that. So I don't blow people off. I listen to all their concerns. Right. I try my best to clarify, offer them information, offer them answers and, and a positive path forward. So and I talk about these these non-evidence-based alternative, you know, uh, treatments and, and approaches that are out there. This is snake oil. This is th- these people are victims. Um, and that's exactly what happens. They're not getting the answers that they need from their own medical professionals. So they're going to seek answers elsewhere. Sometimes they find it online. Sometimes they find it through, you know, naturopaths or homeopaths or chiropractors or, or people who really aren't qualified to diagnose the conditions that they're diagnosing or offer the treatment that they are. And what these people offer them is they offer them their time. They listen to their concerns. They lay their hands on them and they make them feel better. And then they offer them hope. And they, they say, hey, if you take these supplements, it's going to give you the answers that you need. Uh, and then, that, you know, that's when they go down this dark rabbit hole and they spend a lot of money on these things. And speaking of placebo... They're taking mm-hmm. 10 pills. So then it's like, oh, exactly. I feel better now because I'm taking all of these things. I mean, anyone, nobody wants to feel like they wasted their money. If any of us spent $200 on some supplement or treatment, we're going to want it to work. Uh, and as we just discussed, the mind is very powerful when it comes to these sorts of things. So I think we have to recognize all of that. And mm-hmm. uh, also, we want to try to prevent unnecessary you know, spending of money and things like that if we can. Speaking of kind of the functional medicine, naturopathic community, I see a lot of them giving protocols for boosting your immune system, especially Uh heading into cold and flu season. Can you explain why you don't actually want to boost your immune system and why that's not the route to go? Yeah, well, you can't do it even if you wanted to. So (laughs) as a board-certified clinical immunologist, I was never taught how to boost somebody's immune system. That's a lie. I I can boost your immune system by giving you vaccines. So vaccines are a proven way to actually boost specific immunity towards viruses or bacteria. And I can boost your immune system by infusing antibodies into your body, uh, either through uh, intravenously or subcutaneously at home. So unless you're actually getting antibody infusions, which you don't need unless you have a proven antibody deficiency, those are the only ways that you can boost somebody's immune system. The rest of it is complete bunk. Um, so if anybody makes claims that they can boost your immune system, I ask very simple questions. Well, you know, uh, what what age range? What is it, you know, different in men versus women? Uh, do the doses differ? Uh, how do you know that you've boosted their immune system? What specific part of the immune system has been boosted? How long do you need to take this supplement or treatment for before you know that you've been boosted? And then, you know, what's the treatment protocol? So the same way we use medication, which undergo extensive rigorous clinical trials, we can answer all these questions. Does it have the same effect based upon age, weight, and gender? How long do you need to take it for? What what does the dose do? Uh, how do we know when you know the medication has taken effect? What are side effects? So if they can't answer those questions, you need to run the other way. Yeah. And then lastly, anybody with an autoimmune condition will tell you my immune system is way overboosted. So the last thing you want to do is overboost an immune system because then it starts to attack your own body. That's what all these autoimmune conditions are, whether it's type 1 diabetes or those who have thyroid conditions or lupus or, or Sjogren's or things like that. They have an overactive immune system. So boosting the immune system is not a good thing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people don't need to boost their immune system. You know, a lot of people, why why do people get sick? Well, a lot of times that's just the, the fact that you're either exposed to a lot of respiratory pathogens and viruses uh, based upon, you know, 
you have children at home or, you know, depending upon where you work or your social activities, or a lot of us, you know, overall, you know, we're not taking good care of our bodies. So if you really want to, you know, support your immune system and maximize it, eat an overall healthy diet filled with, you know, lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, lots of good, you know, whole grains and things like that. Make sure we maximize our sleep efficiency at night. Make sure we're exercising on a regular basis. You know, make sure we try to reduce our alcohol intake. Uh, smoking cessation is, is, is important as well. So those are all the factors that really support our immune system. Kind of back to the boring stuff, right? <laughs> oh, it's so boring and it's so hard. Right. I know everybody wants that quick fix. I know the pill. Give me the pill to boost my immune yeah. system so I don't have to go to bed early, get my steps, do strength training, eat a right. healthy dietary pattern. I mean, that is a lot harder than just taking a pill, but Yeah. You know, our human our human bodies, our our beings that we have, you know, we're they only last for so long, right? Um in the in the grand scheme of things, my body's probably only gonna last for eighty to ninety years if I take really good care of it. If I don't take good care of it, it's gonna break down you know, sooner than that. Um, our bodies are very complex physiological uh, organisms that interact with our, our, our diet and our environment on a regular basis. Um, it takes a lot of self-care to make sure that we maximize how we feel. Mm. Um, it's, it's really intricate and it's really hard. Yeah. You have a great Instagram post among others, but it's called the skinny on snot. And I think this is still <laughs> a big misconception out there. Even I sometimes get a little weirded out when I have green or yellow mucus because I think, oh my gosh, I, in my mind, you know, growing up, it's like, oh, I need an antibiotic, but that may not be the case. Can you explain green, yellow, clear mucus? When do you need an antibiotic? When don't you? Yeah, so the the color of our snot only indicates the type of immune cell that is responding to whatever's going on. Uh, so people with environmental allergies often have clear snot uh, because it, it's that part of our immune system that's sort of responding to the allergen entering our nose and things like that. Uh, viral infections and bacterial infections can both produce yellow or green snot. Uh, it just based, it's based upon what type of white blood cell is called to, to fight it off. Um, so the color of it doesn't indicate whether you have a virus or bacteria. Antibiotics only treat bacterial infections. They don't treat viruses. Uh, overuse of antibiotics is well recognized as a major problem worldwide. It leads to antibiotic resistance. Uh, it leads to less efficacious you know, antibiotics when we're trying to treat common infections. It can cause increased side effects, increased cost of care, all kinds of bad problems. So we really want to reserve antibiotics, especially for the common cold symptoms. And a lot of people say, oh, I must have a sinus infection because I feel really awful. Well, true sinus infections really can only be diagnosed after like 10 to 14 days. Um, so most common colds are caused by viruses. Most of those viral upper respiratory infections last about seven to 10 days. But for those people that truly have persistent or more importantly, worsening symptoms after that first week and a half, and they have that sort of discolored snot, facial pressure, persistent fevers, they just feel awful. Sometimes you can have tooth pain. Um, those are the folks that may benefit benefit from using an antibiotic or unless you get a CT scan of the sinuses that show mucosal thickening after that period of time and things like that. But for everybody else, this is almost always self-resolved. And I like to say, you know, I can give you an antibiotic and your symptoms are going to improve in two weeks, or we can stop the antibiotic and not use it and your symptoms will improve in 14 days. <laughs> and people often, yeah, right. They kind of look at me like, uh, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's a good way to think about it. I mean, and it also, it just sucks, right? When you're sick, being yeah. sick is the worst. You just want to get over it. And it can be tempting to think, oh, if I just go again and get this pill, it's going to help me. 
And maybe it does again, because of the placebo thing, maybe you do start to feel a little bit better, but it's not necessarily that you had a bacterial infection. Right. And here's the, the dark side of medicine. So a lot of folks will go to these minute clinics that are inside pharmacies and grocery stores. They'll go to urgent care and you show up with the same cold symptoms and they're more likely going to get an antibiotic when they go there. They don't have long-term relationships with the folks there. The folks that are sort of staffing these may not have the same level of expertise as their own physician might or you know an infectious disease doctor or something like that. Um, so overuse of antibiotics is a huge problem uh, for, start, stemming from the medical system, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, So we're, we're we're a, a huge part of this problem as well. And it's really, you go there probably for an antibiotic, right? Because why would you go to a minute clinic if you're just going to write it out on your couch at home? Yeah. So, you know, right now, um, uh, and we know we're recording this in you know, late autumn uh, and it's, uh, there's been this huge surge of respiratory illnesses affecting children. So RSV is a virus that circulates every year. Influenza is on the rise. The common cold called rhinovirus. We still have SARS-CoV-2 out there, COVID. Uh, they're making people sick. So our, our pediatric emergency rooms are just overwhelmed right now. And families take their sick child um, and they wait for eight to 10 hours. And then they're often told that there's nothing you can do other than supportive care. Um, that gets really frustrating. And, you know, the people get really upset. Of, Why did I wait that long? Uh, and I get it. I understand that. But there's also no quick fix that we can offer you. Um, so we, we just have to do a much better job of trying to promote evidence-based, you know, um, information and medication and medicine and health messaging and public health messaging and pediatricians are overwhelmed as well. But, um, you know, it's, it's we want to do everything we can to help everybody, but there's often not a quick fix. Right. And I'm sure you just wish with your whole being that you could give something for the cold that would just make it go away. But oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Trust if Look, if there was some magic fix, physicians, we're not going to hide it from you. I mean, there's, there's no conspiracy, despite what the Internet tells you. Yeah, like, you guys not, are all hoarding it yourselves. And <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's just it, it boggles my mind to think like what you think that we're just we're keeping this from you. And we've had all the answers for all these years. No, yeah. it's often because we don't have the answers. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the answer is wash your hands, don't touch your face, sleep, like the things you said, support your immune system the best you can, and then yeah. write it out when you have a cold and drink water. <laughs> and, it, and if you have if you have concerns, contact your personal physician to discuss. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> got it. A lot. Or one of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? I love that question. Um, so for me personally, um, it really means committing myself to um, a daily regimen of conscious decisions uh, regarding exercise, diets, uh, all these different things we talked about that impact my overall health um, to really maximize my potential to be around for as long as I possibly can and maintain good health so I can do the things that I love doing. You know, our children are 10 and 13. I've, I have a family history of, you know, early onset heart disease and, and um, people having heart attacks in their 40s. And I need to be aware of that. And I have to make sure I don't make poor choices when it comes to my personal health that can increase my risk for experiencing that. I like hiking and being outdoors and traveling and, and exercising. And I want to continue to do that for as long as I possibly can. So for me, the health investment really is a conscious effort to uh, maintain all of these daily things, um, you know, to, to just improve my existence on this planet. <laughs> I know everybody's going to want to connect with you off air. And so I mentioned your Instagram. Can you share all the places people can find you? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So I'm, um, my handle is at allergy kids doc 
on both Instagram and Twitter. We shall see what happens on Twitter over the coming <laughs> weeks to months, but uh, I'm, I'm still out there for now. Um, and I'm not as active as I want to be. I'll be totally honest, and I appreciate all of your, your kind words. Um, but, you know, I, I don't get paid for this stuff. I, it, this is just sort of I enjoy doing these things. I, I've received a lot of benefit over the years. I learned so much from all of you and the interactions that we have. I bring this to my patients and provide anticipatory guidance. I take what I learned from them and I put it online. Uh, but, you know, I don't have staff members posting for me. This is just me trying to do this in my own free time. And as an academic pediatrician, I'm involved in research. You know, I, the patients that I treat, quality improvements and all the, all the different things that I do with our professional organization. So I do what I can and I love it. Um, but please forgive me if I don't post every day. But honestly, you have such, it's almost like a blog at this point, right? I mean, there's the whole archive. So yeah. I think we forget that about Instagram as we're waiting for the new posts, but you could just scroll through your, I'm sure hundreds of posts at this point and get a huge breadth of knowledge of just evidence-based information about all types of allergies, colds, flus, COVID vaccines, like all of the things. I hope so. Yeah, thank you. And I, I notice that every once in a while when people find me, I see that they liked all these posts from like a year or two ago. I'm like, oh, they must have just found me, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, but that means they're scrolling through to see all the content I put out there. For sure. So I, I would highly recommend that. Again, I was doing that in preparation for this show. We could have talked for another hour or two. You have so much great stuff on there. So I highly recommend that everybody follow you and then scroll through the archive um, because no need to post every day. It's already up there, right? Just people need to utilize that part of social media. I think the static posts for sure. Well, if I may, and I know we're we're wrapping up. So one thing that I've really worked hard at is I approach social media from a very academic standpoint. So I have research on this. I actually wrote a textbook on how to, you know, best strategies for medical professions. I teach an elective course, but I, I try my best to understand my personal relationship with it. And for all of us, you know, think about social media. It was designed to maximize our interactions uh, at any given time. It, you know, it, it is there to give us that dopamine hit of, you know, did they like my post? How many likes did I get? How many follows did I get? And then we just scroll endlessly and mindlessly. So I've been very cognizant of my own relationship with social media over the years. Um, and, you know, I, I've struggled with this. You know, if you take your phone to bed at night and you're just scrolling and scrolling, or if you're, you know, hanging out with friends and loved ones and people have their phones out, you'll notice this. So I turned off my notifications a long time ago. I interact with my phone and social media when I'm ready to do so. I don't let it dictate whenever it Mm. wants to interact with me. Yeah. Turning off the notifications is huge. News too, I would say like all notifications. I just keep my phone. It's basically a paperweight all the time. I don't even have it flash when I get a text because I just feel like it pulls me out of, like you said, if I'm working on something or I'm having a conversation and then people get mad at me because if they call, it always goes straight to voicemail, but I always call Mm -hmm. you back. But it's like, I just, it, it takes a conscious decision. And like you were Uh talking about making the health investment, these conscious choices we make every day, that's a big one that you make all day long of your relationship with your devices. And absolutely, it's not easy, but I think that's worth saying and well said. Thanks for sharing. Well, it's like, it's like they designed it to make it not easy. I know. <laughs> it's like they want us to be on there nonstop. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Well, thank you so, so much for being here and sharing your time with us. I, so, I truly enjoyed this conversation, and I look forward to staying connected with you off air. Yes, that'd be great. Thank you again for having me. I had a great time. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. 
On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.